0: From BYU Broadcasting's performance studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. If you're a viola player, a lover of music history, or even just a fan of Baroque music, today is your lucky day. We're hearing not just one, not just two, but three different kinds of violas, including one with way more strings than you think it could have. We'll also include some Baroque vocals and a harpsichord for good measure. Our guests in studio today include Dr. Robert Baldwin, director of orchestral activities and professor of music at the University of Utah. He's also a music director of the Salt Lake Symphony. He'll be playing the viola and viola d'amore today, and he's brought with him a University of Utah faculty ensemble, including, and we'll meet them separately, Pamela Palmer Jones' harpsichord, Kirsten Gunnlogsen' mezzo-soprano, and Leslie Richards' viola da gamba. definitely be getting the scoop on the various kinds of violas we're hearing in this performance and we'll chat about what makes baroque baroque first though some music sonata number three for viola and harpsichord by bach we'll hear the first of the three movements originally this piece was written for viola da gamba just heard Sonata Number 3 for viola and harpsichord by Bach, the first of the three movements, and we'll actually hear the third mo- movement later in the program. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. You're listening to Highway 89, where it's Viola Day, and we have so many violas here. If only we had someone who had written a master's thesis on the history of the viola. Viola D'Amore. D'Amore, and we do. This is Gordon Childs. Gordon has worked in public school systems. He's taught at colleges. And
1: where did you first find out what an, uh, uh, Viola D'Amore was? I was a graduate student at BYU at B- in 1952. I took a graduate music history class with Doctor, with Professor Wakefield. Wakefield gave us each an instrument out of the broke period. He said, you're going to learn to play it. I was the principal viola in the symphony. He said, you're going to play the viola de mori. I'd never heard of the thing. He handed me the instrument, and from that point on, I have been a viola de mori player. And in 1982, I hosted the first international Congress of viola de mori players at the University of Wyoming.
0: Do I dare ask how many viola de mori players
1: there are in the world today? We just had our 17th International Congress in Hungary last June. And in the town of Kopasvar, we had about 36, 37 players there. But in the list, we have over 300 to 400 people around the world.
0: So being a viola player, four-string instrument, when your professor handed this to you, what did you think, seeing all the different, the well, extra strings? I was confused, strings. it only took
1: me two <laughs> weeks to figure out a to tune the thing, let alone the
0: <laughs> How many strings are, uh, I hear it's variable.
1: Well, it's variable, it's either, usually it's a seven on a top, and seven little wire strings we call sympathetic strings underneath the, the bri- that goes through the uh, fingerboard, so on. But there are also ones with only six, plus six. And then there are any differences between, but the usual ones you're gonna to hear tonight the one that uh, has 14 strings, seven and seven.
0: (laughs) So are some of the strings the same as the four that that violas would be familiar with?
1: They are, except that the viola de mora is tuned in a chord fashion. We call it lyraway. So that it, and I think Rob is gonna be tuned to D major, which means that he starts with a low A, goes up to D then he goes up to A, then he goes up to D, then he has an F sharp string, and then he has an A, and then he has a D string on top.
0: <laughs> okay, are these still made today, or do you have to look in Italian pawn shops to find?
1: The one that Rob is playing was made by a very good friend of mine who just died a year ago in Orem. His name was Jay Young. Jay, when I retired 20 years ago and moved here, I took over the American Force Symphony, and Jay was my principal violist. I got acquainted with him, and he started making viola de mores. And the one he's playing was made by Jay Young.
0: Good. Final Um, question. Sure. Which of viola de gamba, viola de more, viola,
1: who was first? Probably the gamba. Mm -hmm. But the de more came along in in the early 17th century, too.
0: Gordon Childs, thank you. We're going to give an example here. We we ought to hear this. We've been talking about. So we're going to hear an excerpt from the first movement of a concerto for Viola de More. This is by Antonio Vivaldi. Concerto for Viola de More in D minor, Antonio Vivaldi, an excerpt from that first movement. So interesting to hear those strings ringing out even after the, the bowing has stopped. Uh, Dr. Pamela Palmer-Jones, Pam, you're the coordinator for musicianship at the U of U School of Music, and you teach several subjects in the department. Uh, do you have to have your own harpsichord in your house to be able to be a harpsichordist?
2: No, I don't have my own actually. <laughs>
0: you just have to have access.
2: Yes, and the University of Utah owns three of them.
0: Well, we had a lot of fun today. In fact, I saw a picture of how you had to pack the harpsichord into your car, and it wasn't a minivan, and the keyboard was within an inch. Of, of the hatchback, and from what I could see, it looks like, and I think this is the technical term, the pointy end.
2: The pointy end, yes. Uh,
0: was wedged right in between the driver and the passenger, so it barely fit.
2: That's correct. Um, Dr. Baldwin, Rob was driving, and he couldn't really move his right arm very much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, officer, it's a harpsichord. Mm-hmm. I couldn't move. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, there was a harpsichord before there was a piano. Correct. And I'm just wondering uh, if, if I understand, it's always plucked. There's mm-hmm. something that plucks the strings, and originally those were quills from chicken feathers, or from. Is that how it always was with feathers?
2: Um, it, it's possible in the early days, but they they refined their methods and and used other materials in, instead later on. Now they have some sort of um, plastic or something that they use for the the. Um, Plectra. And so they you have, don't have to carry
0: a chicken you don't have to carry. A,
2: you, you don't have to have your own fowl in order to get <laughs> your quills.
0: <laughs> when you're playing as part of an ensemble rather than a harpsichord solo, are the, are the parts very different or does it just depend on the composer, whether it's more of an accompaniment or trading off with the solo?
2: It's very much in the spirit of how a, a jazz player would read a lead sheet. That's what we do is we have a bass line with numbers. It's called figured bass, and we improvise a part. Um, to the the numbers. And so Leslie and I are, are, she's playing the uh, viola da gamba and we're playing the same bass line, but I'm adding chords to the top.
0: I'm just thinking that uh, it's, it's interesting to hear a solo. And then especially the Bach piece you just played, I mean, the hands are always moving independently. Um, you don't even get a rest.
2: Right, that's very different than playing a figured bass line. That's an actual written-out part, and Bach was very specific about what he wanted, and he left nothing to chance. But when you play figured bass, it's doing like Baroque improvisation.
0: Well, let's hear some more. We're going to hear from a composer, Atilio Ariosti. We'll hear a section from a cantata Pur Alfine fin gentil viola, the first and the third movements. So we're going to combine everybody to here today who's playing. You'll hear viola de more, mezzo-soprano, harpsichord, and the viola de gamba on this piece. <laughs> first and third movements of music by Ariosti, cantata pur al fin gentil viola. He could sing, they say. He wrote drama, he played cello, but he said by far his favorite instrument was playing the viola d'amore. In fact, he wrote 21 different solo sonatas for the instrument. You're listening to Highway 89 live from Studio 6 at BYU Broadcasting. Mezzo-soprano Kirsten Gunnlogsen is associate professor of voice at the University of Utah, and that is only in addition to the many different roles you've played in operas and different companies all over the place. What does mezzo mean, mezzo-soprano?
3: In, excuse me, in Fach terminology, it it really means the middle soprano. So if you look at... um, so the, the range of sopranos, it's the lower of the sopranos. It's really the place between a lyric soprano and an alto, like a, a choral description of mm-hmm. a lower voice. Mezzo-soprano lies in the middle.
0: Well, I saw one reviewer describe your voice as rich, creamy, beautifully dramatic, and I thought, it's nice they used food words because I walked in and heard you warming (laughs) up and I turned to someone and I said, that sounds delicious.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Such a warm, round tone. And besides the very feminine roles you've played, you also have made kind of a a career out of also playing what are called the trouser roles.
3: It's true. Yes, it's true. I actually um, had my, my, uh, sort of first professional jobs, um, out of college were trouser rolls. And it immediately became sort of a niche for me in mm-hmm. operatic repertoire and something I enjoyed and still do enjoy very much, very much in my repertoire. It's, um, a fun acting challenge and I love being <laughs> a singing actor and playing trouser rolls is, is a great joy for me.
0: Well, you probably have to also have a certain, uh, level of fitness to do those? I mean, I'm just not ever picturing <laughs> yes. Jesse Norman and Lederhalsen and well, Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> do you have a favorite one of those roles that you love to do?
3: You know, um, probably my favorite uh which is a role I've done several times and have had the opportunity to revisit uh, throughout my career is Querdobino and Leonno di mm-hmm. And he's such a special character and it's been such a joy to play him at different parts of my life and to grow with him as a character. And um, yeah, he's probably my favorite. I do love Hansel and Hansel and Gretel just because it's such a a fun, it gives you an opportunity to really get to act like a child and explore some of that youthful energy that we all have kind of hidden within ourselves. But Catabino would probably be my favorite.
0: So let's talk Baroque singing. Now from the time of the Renaissance, I mean, there's sort of been this, this, I guess we would call it today a classical sound, a trained sound. But from Renaissance through Baroque, Romantic, and on into today, is it the same sound all the way through, or has it changed a lot in different periods?
3: Well, stylistically speaking, for this type of music, the the sound is what I would describe as just leaner, uh, slimmer. Um, I think that in the approach of this, um, there's often just a straightening out of the tone in different places. Um, uh, trills and ornamentation are a little bit different. And I think as, uh, you know, sort of vocal style changed um, as we got into more romantic music and later, the the voice had an opportunity to be a little bit more lush and to be a little bit more open mm. and to be a little bit more free. And with Italian, um, uh, more, uh, you know, um, grand opera italian writing we got into things like you know delicious portamenti and 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 more legato and and things like that and so this style of music is what i would say just a little bit more clean a little bit more slim a little more lean
0: okay controlled maybe
3: maybe a little bit controlled absolutely yeah i I think that that's a good word to describe it yeah
0: well final question how do we know how they sounded we have no recordings. We I guess we judge from what's written in the music, or is it tradition that's just been passed on?
3: Well, and I also think we can judge a little bit by writings that we read about, you know, different composers and different, you know, writings that we have. But it, it is hard. I think the traditions we hope that have been passed down and just records that we have, but the recordings, you know, it's it's very challenging. I think that's what's great about Baroque groups that try to keep this type of music alive and performed, is that they've really spent a lot of time delving and investing into performance practice and research so that they can hopefully carry on some of those traditions and be the, the voice of this music for the next generation.
0: Well, let's hear more. This is a piece written by Claudia Sessa. She was a nun at the convent of Santa Maria Annunziata. In 1613, she had two pieces she had written were taken out of the convent and published. This is one of these. vici We'll hear the first and third movements, and this is the complete ensemble today you. vici d'ivoire" by Claudia Sessa. We heard one movement of that work with the entire group: viola de more, alto soprano harpsichord, and viola de gamba. You're listening to Highway 89 live from Studio 6 at BYU Broadcasting. Uh, Robert Baldwin, thank you for bringing the group today. My pleasure. It's, it's great, great to bring this,
4: this music down and to come down here to the studios. It sounds like you do a lot of time traveling it's kind of part of the 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 entire part of being a musician really i mean we're we're in many different centuries and uh, kind of discovering what made people tick and,
0: and that's through the music so you play viola then later you picked up the viola d'amore and do you ever wish you could combine them I, do you miss one when you're playing the other Oh, not at all. Actually, 14 strings is plenty to deal with, on the one. The other
4: four is fine. Um, okay. It's it's one of those things where I, I've always wanted to play the viola de moray, and, and it was one of those dreams. And so I think it's kind of my, as I turned 50, it became my sports car. Uh, it's, it's just a great experience to, to kind of learn a new instrument with new repertoire. Because most of that repertoire is not in the viola, and so it, it opens up a whole
0: period of music that there really is very little for the viola. And it's a beautiful instrument, the one you're playing that was made for you. The scroll has—I'm picturing old sailing ships with a masthead, whatever you call the lady on the front. Well, that's what's on the scroll up at the top, only she's blindfolded. What's the significance? What's the story there? Well, de Moray, love, and love
4: is blind. Love is blind, And okay. so you, you get a, a figure, often a Cupid head uh, or a lady's, uh, you know, lady's uh, depiction that is blindfolded. Love is blind,
0: well, I, I, I'm glad I knew there had to be some story behind that, and it makes a lot of sense. These instruments were they were they being played even before the baroque? I mean, were they Renaissance instruments? In some cases, the viola da gamba was,
4: uh, and the viola itself was, uh, the violin family instrument, the viola family instrument came around in, actually in the middle of the Renaissance, about 1450. We actually see pictures of those instruments, and so we know they existed. And the viol family, the viola da gambas, maybe just a little bit before that. Um, but the the viols were played in court, and the uh, the violin family were played by the peasants. And they weren't considered uh, um, cultured enough. And so it's interesting <laughs> that the viols finally died out, much like a lot of the Royalty and the the people's instrument
0: took over. But they could only afford four strings. Uh, (laughs) That could be. Yeah. Well, Leslie Richard's has been playing the viola de gamba today, which is played upright which I didn't realize. Like a from, cello. Yeah. yeah, like a cello. And so is this a cello precursor? It's actually, the, the instruments
4: aren't really related. Huh. The playing style is similar, but they came from a completely different uh, uh, tradition. If you, your, your listeners could take a, a little eagle eye into the studio, they would look at her uh, instrument and see that it has frets like a guitar. And so there's a lot of evidence that says those instruments came out of a good, more of a guitar-like instrument that became a bowed
0: instrument. Interesting. Well, it's they blend so well together, as well as the harpsichord. When you start introducing students to music from the Baroque and they start playing or trying to play period uh, music, do they get it? Does it take a while to, to start thinking Baroque?
4: It's an, a really good question because uh, string players, we play Baroque music from the very beginning. Ah. There's Bach in the Suzuki books, if you start in that tradition, and you, you really start it with a certain kind of uh, approach to it. But when you get into kind of what the Baroque music was all about and what the, the ethos of the Baroque period, it becomes something very different. So for instance, and many students who go to university and get their first chance, Gordon mentioned, all of a sudden you're throwing a new instrument and a new style of playing. We just passed out 24 Baroque bows to the, the University of Utah Orchestra and we're doing a Bach piece right now where they have to kind of learn and they're learning that the bows work differently and and that kind of tells you a little something about the music that
0: is not exactly what you expect. Well we're gonna hear the third movement of Sonata number no. three by Bach. We heard the first movement as the opening number tonight. This will be viola, the regular viola and the harpsichord performed by Robert Baldwin and Pamela Palmer Jones on the harpsichord. movement from sonata number three by Johann sebastian bach that was performed by our guest today which concludes this edition of highway 89 we have loved taking a journey back to the baroque era with period instruments many thanks to dr robert baldwin director of orchestral activities and professor of music at the university of utah for providing such excellent performances the musicians have been robert baldwin viola and viola de more Pamela Palmer-Jones, harpsichord, Kirsten Gunlockson, mezzo-soprano, and Leslie Richards, viola de gamba. Thank you to each of you. Don't forget, we love to hear from you, our listeners. Send your comments and questions by email to highway89 at byu.edu. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. The recording engineer is Mark Waite, and our producer is Jackie Tataishi. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening.